Yeah, we don't want to do anything to scare your children. That's the last thing we want to do. We don't want to scare anybody. Welcome back to Leftover. I'm Arjan. I'm Nikita. This week we have Melted. We are talking about the EU, the thing that everyone loves to talk about, especially on the left. And we're talking about Brexit, uh, you know, the, the favorite favorite topic of, of everyone's. Um, but it's been five years. You know, it's been five whole years since the referendum, uh, since the thing that turned all of our worlds upside down, so to say. Uh, and, um, you know, before all the lands were sunny and, uh, and, and, and welcoming and Britain was the envy of the world. And suddenly, you know, Britain turned into this closed minded, small nation. Uh, and to talk about it with us, someone who has previous experience of working within the machinations of the European Union, as well as the machinations of the British, uh, left podcasting, uh, complex, Rob from podcasting is practice thank you so much for joining <laughs> yeah thank you guys uh, so much for, for having me it's a, it's a pleasure to be here currently i'm uh, co-hosting or doing research or whatever you want to call it for podcasting is praxis uh, at praxis cast but we'll do plugs at the end but before that uh in my previous life slash career i worked for nearly a decade in and around the european institutions so i've seen the beast up close and you know i'm happy to share my thoughts around it i was i was in and around brussels as well during the whole time of the referendum and the whole time period pretty much of what we're going to be talking about up until I would say about a year ago or something that I left that gig. Um, but yeah, wow. so I've, I've seen a lot of it up close. So yeah, I mean, um, yeah. so you've definitely seen how the sausage gets made, so to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and like the saying goes, it is one of those things where you'd prefer not to see it, but you know, we'll, we'll talk, we'll get to that, I think. But you know, are we going to do that really melt thing of like talking about where we were when we found out about the referendum result? <laughs> I've been in front of the TV all night, oh, as wow. I am with literally any kind of vote. <laughs> but I, I was very upset because <laughs> I'd gone, I'd gone from quite like uh, you know a, a pretty like Lexit position to actually registering to vote, and then being like, okay, freedom of movement's too important, and then in the day where I was like, right, okay, I'm going to vote, I had become quite invested in it. Yeah. And then I watched it all night and was like, actually, I think I was mainly more upset about like what the, the direction I thought the country was going in. And like, yeah. even though we, we had a Tory government, it was like, and they just won a majority of the year before, but just feeling like, you know, the races had won. Um, and yeah. then also watching the pound tank, which was kind of funny, but um, yeah, that's kind of where I was. Yeah, I mean, didn't didn't Farage and his buddies make millions off uh, shorting the pound on the night of the Brexit result? Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, a bunch of them did. I think yeah. some of the funds uh, linked to Jacob Rees-Mogg may have yeah, done yeah, the yeah. same, but I don't know that for sure. So I'm going to say allegedly. that they allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. <laughs> what about Europe? Were you were you in Brussels at the time? 
I was in Brussels and uh, my partner was there as well and, and she is actually British. So mm. quite frankly, and, and you know, I, I got it very wrong, quite frankly. I, I went to bed. We went to bed at yeah. about 10 or 11 in the evening and I just said, well, you know, like it'll be close, but I can't imagine that, you know, a majority of the British people will actually go through with this because it seems so manifestly not a very good idea and then I was woken up the following morning and she she, she, she woke me up and she said to me well uh, like we 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 don't live on this in the same place anymore and that was you know mm. really quite quite shocking and, and mm. some of the effects I mean you know I'll, I'll leave her out of it as much as I can but like we have noticed some of the effects in terms of just purely her ability to get work permits uh, yeah. some of the stuff like you know we've considered marriage I mean mm -hmm. we're, we're engaged now so like it's also now we have to ask questions like okay if if we get married where do we do that what mm -hmm. what what citizenship can our kids get if we want to have them that sort of thing yeah so yeah it, it was really i i remember more the waking up the following morning and just thinking what what the hell how you know i i got yeah. it wrong and i was i i listened to all the melt opinions and i got it wrong yeah yeah i mean i think i i'm kind of in the same position to be honest because it was like up until then even though it was kind of looking like it could go either way but it just seemed so sort of out there you know like the, the prospect of the the um you know leave vote actually going through and especially um if you count the um the scotland referendum the year before or like the um, you know the av referendum um when that happened and just kind of always thinking that the british people are going to especially in times of crisis revert to the status quo you know and this is like a sort of given you know this is like a sort of um Thing that's bound to happen and uh yeah I, I also went to sleep not really i had work the next morning and i just went to sleep like not thinking too much of it uh, i thought that the you know that the remain campaign had been pretty shambolic um you know all around but yeah like waking up the next morning and just like looking especially at the um, quote of nigel farage is saying that this is independence day you know and like thinking about like Everything that this man represents, you know, like the unrepentant old colonial power of Britain, you know, which has gone unexamined and uninterrogated for the better part of a century. Like we have Independence Day in India <laughs> against these fucking people. <laughs> like, And like, I'm not normally like, I don't have like particularly like nationalistic sentiments at all. Uh, I'm pretty critical of, of India, the concept of India, as, as you know, our listeners will know. But um, yeah, you know, especially at that moment, it just seems kind of kind of incredible. Also, just sight aside, um, a really funny thing about growing up in Leicester is on Indian Independence Day, they'll like shut down a few of the roads and then have like a street party. Oh. So like, the British people can't drive around. It's just Indian people having a street party. Sorry, good, good God. <laughs> the, like the one thing I'll add is that like that was the moment like that day uh, waking up, uh, you know, and, and going into work and it just kind of like, there was this feeling around the workplace of like, just kind of like shock. I was working in this call center at the time and like, it felt like someone had died. Yeah. We we had the same. I mean, I was I I just went to work like everybody else, and, and yeah. at the time I worked in a very multinational office. I don't think we yeah. had any English staff then, but we certainly had them in the past. And everybody was just sort of coming in and looking at us, like going like, "What the you know what the fuck? How did this happen?" And then yeah. we don't get it. And I think the last 
time before that that there was that sort of mood in in the uh, in the office of that nature was sort of at the peak of the euro crisis of the greek crisis mm-hmm. uh when it was really like there were a couple of days when it was almost like greece would leave and then mm-hmm. there would be really substantial questions about the euro and and the future of europe as a whole and i think it was mm-hmm. that sort of same atmosphere like everybody felt like it was a very much a, a body blow to to the system especially since the uk was maybe not one of the founders but was you know since the 1970s was one of the big three members you know mm-hmm. it was it, a lot of people found it very conceptually hard to realize that this was something that had happened yeah and i think like one of the sort of overriding feelings that i had like at that moment was now trump is going to win and i just knew like that's also why on the night of the american elections that yeah i went to sleep knowing Trump is going to win. And I woke up and I looked at my phone and I saw that Trump had won. (laughs) But it was just something about that, you know, like it was this explanation or this narrative has been, you know, uh, talked a lot, especially in left circles, you know, but but about the idea of this being a uh, a protest vote against uh, a sort of broad neoliberal system, which is neglected, especially people living in like post-industrial areas over the better part of three or four decades. And uh, so it didn't really matter whether the suits were in Westminster or Brussels, you know, it was just a big fuck you vote, especially considering that, you know, in, in the UK, like you've got first past the post. So like in a lot of these places, like regardless of which way you vote, it doesn't really matter anyway, a lot of the time. So like even the idea that your vote would get counted, I think at some subliminal level, I think didn't register for a lot of people. So like it was a combination of a lot of these things, right? And, you know, it, it was it was opportunists like Nigel Farage, you know, and especially Boris Johnson, you know, uh, who's the arch opportunist in, in British politics to kind of capitalize on the sentiment, you know, and and to kind of turn it all about how, you know, foreign corrupting forces are are. are you know, ruining this country. Yeah. And that, that breaking point poster that as well, the Farage one. Poster as yeah, well. that was right. disgusting. I mean, that was just disgusting. But I always find it interesting and I find I find it difficult at the same time. Like, like I don't think that all of this, including the Trump thing, was just, I mean, Trump is and was a grifter. Farage is and was a grifter. Mm-hmm. Boris, I'm not sure if he's a grifter or if he just coasts to whatever... Uh, a position will get him his next gig or will get him a payday. But I do think, and then uh, having met some people later on and also during my time in Brussels who were uh, uh, Brexit Party members or, or UKIP back mm-hmm. then, uh, there is and was, a, 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 it's a small strain, but a real strain of people who do have genuine convictions, both from the left and right, about the need to leave the European Union. Uh, you know, it, I always find it, I find it incredibly difficult to sort of disentangle where exactly and how exactly these opinions are formed. But I do think certainly what you said about, you know, the, the, the post-industrial areas, the collapse of the neoliberal consensus, the certainly, I mean, I, I don't think you would have had Brexit or Trump without uh, the financial crisis in 2008 and then austerity after that. Yeah. Uh, I do think it has a lot to do with material conditions, but there is certainly, I think, in, 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 in England, more than in other parts, I think, of the UK, this strain of cultural exceptionalism of you know the 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 sort of weird foundational myth of the blitz and britain stands alone and all that stuff coupled with the hangover of empire that creates these sort of weird i would say unique conditions but close on unique conditions where i think it it happened in the uk but i i think on continent in continental europe those conditions are 
not as replicable, not in the same way. Because I, I think it would be good to kind of like set a bit of a, a timeline of like the events sort of both leading up to it and following the referendum, right? And I think like, because I moved back to, to London in 2014, one of the first big, you know, political events of that, at that time was the European elections um, in 2014, where Nigel Farage's UKIP won. And they got 27% of the votes. They got 24 seats. And it was the first time since 1910 that any party other than Labour or the Conservatives had won an election in the UK. Um, and I mean, obviously, that sent shockwaves throughout the entire political system. But it wasn't just UKIP that had won. Um, National Front had won in France as well. Um, the PVV in the Netherlands. Well, they they actually lost seats, I believe, at that election. Uh, but um, FPO, uh, AfD, like all of these Golden Dawn, you know, like far right groups across Europe were, you know, winning power. And there was clearly a sort of because I I remember even like in two thousand and eight when I went to the Netherlands to uni for the first time and like seeing the rise of um, Wilders. Yeah, just like thinking about how like the the conditions of the you know recession and the financial crisis is definitely going to lead to this, and kind of like really seeing that materialize. Um, and so I think it is interesting to see kind of like how in the UK that that resulted in the actual referendum and then you know uh, Britain actually leaving, uh, whereas in other countries that further step hasn't quite happened. No, I mean, I think partly has to do just simply with the, the way the electoral system is formed. I mean, uh, I'm trying to remember, but I don't think in the rest of the European Union, there are any first past the post systems, mm -hmm. certainly not the sort of winner take all system in, in as you have in the UK. And then obviously, with the win of, of Farage, you know, you could see and it was it was immediate uh, that, that the Conservatives then under Cameron thought if we don't hold a referendum, then something much worse will happen to us the next time there's a national election, which is the yeah. one that really matters to us. And therefore, you know, the, the, this path to the second referendum, which was always sort of a, a, a growing tumor were inside the Conservative Party anyway, had to be launched and it had to be pushed forward, which is what then happened. Cameron pretty much offered that second referendum, offered the EU referendum rather, in his 2015 election pitch in order to- Because he didn't think he'd lose it, that's it, the thing. Exactly. I mean, like the entire Remain side was just was just fully complacent and fully resting on their laurels and, and thinking that this is a done deal. And, you know, uh, you know Brexit is a joke idea and, um, you know, not, nothing's actually going to come of it, which kind of showed itself in the run up to the actual referendum itself. Right. Alan Johnson, who was leading Labour's... <laughs> the golden pharaoh insect <laughs> later, yes. The masked singer, Alan Johnson. <laughs> like, what? That man is such a prick. I hate him so much. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and he has somehow, like, gone unanswered. Like, I mean... Like unaccounted for, like so much bullshit. Oh, when we were researching the um, asylum episode, so much heinous fucking shit came from him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what was his cabinet position under Blair? Uh, he must have been Home Secretary at some point. Was he Home Secretary? Uh, yeah, I think or everybody was, was Home Secretary under <laughs> Blair for five <laughs> minutes. <laughs> Secretary of State for the Home Department, right? Shadow right. Chancellor. Oh. 
that's it, apparently. No, yeah, wait, Shadow no, Chancellor, Jesus Christ. Minister they almost put State. that fucking golden clown in charge of the economy. <laughs> <laughs> Minister of State for Universities, uh, Work and Pensions, Board of Trade, Education and Skills, Secretary of State for Health, and Home Secretary. <laughs> Ah, so yeah, yeah, he was Home Secretary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, a I, real uh, Sajid Javid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like in, in the run-up to the actual referendum, like the Remain side barely fucking campaigned. And like the person who was like blamed most for Brexit somehow, Jeremy Corbyn, went to like more than a hundred different rallies. Yeah, he turned up more than Alan Johnson did. <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> like... <laughs> And this is a guy, like, he definitely didn't want to vote Remain, did no. he? No. <laughs> poor guy. Corbyn does legit come from, like, the, like, left Eurosceptic tradition of, yeah, like... Yeah, like, of the Ben mould. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I always find that, that's for me, is always one of those terminally unanswerable questions. Uh, whether, how he actually voted or how he would have wanted to vote irrelevant. had he not been... I think it's I mean, it doesn't matter irrelevant. either way. It's like irrelevant, uh, yeah. I, mean, I, I think he could have gone either way. I do think that what you see also very much in him is the sort of strong Labour internationalist tradition. As so well, I think in yeah. that spirit, he may very well have i mean i thought i always thought that for me personally his answer that the european union was about seven out of ten that you know famous famous thing that the fuck he's still fucking yeah. hanging for was <laughs> i mean i'm personally like a five and a half out of ten like a 5.1 like a bear pass but seven was generous <laughs> yeah, yeah that's seven's yeah. pretty good considering <laughs> i remember at the time as well like i said i was working in this call center right and like uh the labor party used to actually outsource some of the calling to us like some of their fundraising oh no uh, <laughs> so we were doing labor party phone calls in the run-up to the uh 2016 uh re- referendum and like i got through to some guy and like these are all labor members like and i got through to some guy in like west country somewhere you know at the beginning he starts talking about how yeah the eu oh but it's actually really bad because it's all about you know um taking away workers rights and things like that the, the the line of argument he was going for seemed to be more sort of along economic lines. And I I broadly seem to be agreeing. And I was like, all right, fair enough. Maybe, yeah, this guy it probably does, you know, um, in that case, uh, you know, maybe, may, maybe, you know, lean, lean a bit further to the left. And, and that's why I was like, yeah, and that's why, you know, Labour is saying that the EU is going to protect workers' rights. And, and then he's like, oh, but protect workers' rights? Next week, I'm going to call the same number and someone's going to pick up and say, hello, how are you? How can I be of help? (laughs) I'm just just thinking, I I don't know if you realize I am that guy. (laughs) Just because I don't speak like that. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. It was just such a, it was just such a bizarre time, honestly, because like, like I said, I think it's, it's, it's so difficult to, um, you know, no matter like how, valid your criticisms of the eu are and might be it's just so it became so difficult to disentangle it from this what was an overtly racist project yeah that's why i thought that like some of the um, stuff that i saw on like some leftist media at the time as well i would have thought was a bit irresponsible in terms of like not necessarily presenting the full scope of like what this was all about yeah, I mean, to me as well, uh, if you looked at the actual Remain campaign, I mean, famously, you know, the, the line was that it was Project Fear, and, and it very much, I think, certainly was, with those mm-hmm. idiotic estimates that 
they were put out under Osborne that, you know, if we leave the EU, like the UK economy will collapse overnight, which obviously it hasn't. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not gone well, but it hasn't, you know, like you're not eating rats in the street. It's uh, not mad to, to put it that way. No, no not condoms yet. and pizzas. <laughs> um, so, it, it, but there was also, also and, and I think that was something that certainly, I mean, that's it, the legacy of Thatcher to me, certainly the latter half of Thatcher is that, all British governments, and quite frankly, most governments in the European Union as well, uh, do this typical trick of, of if it's bad, Brussels made us do it. If it's good, we got it from Brussels. Yeah. Because it's always a convenient boogeyman. And and with Cameron, it was incredibly jarring. Because if you remember, you know, in, in the run-up, he went to Brussels and he said, I'm going to put my foot down and want more this, that, and I want more exemptions. And uh, I'm not getting them. And if I don't, then I'll have a, another referendum. And then all of a sudden, you know, after all that two years of language of I'm tough against the EU, he had to like turn on a dime and go, Actually, though, the EU is really good. You should mm-hmm. all stay. And I'm like, no yeah. wonder that most people were either confused or were like, you're mm-hmm. just full of shit. Like, yeah. even just discounting the media pressure and everything behind it, you know, that just, you're just full of shit. You know, this is clearly not trustworthy. Yeah, I think people forget, like, how much, like, Cameron was doing this sort of hard man posturing in Brussels, like, in the, in the, in the years leading up to the, to the election and then the referendum. Like, and he was, like, doing this thing about, like, how, Britain has paid too much or something like that. And it's, you know, um, it, it deserves its value for money for its contributions to the EU. And it's something along those lines. Right. And um, it just all seemed very fucking silly. Immediately in the aftermath of the referendum, you know, like Cameron steps down, Osborne steps down, Brexit becomes seen as a bit of a poison chalice. And like, no one really wants to have to deal with it. And um, which weirdly enough, it's turned into a fucking golden egg for Boris Johnson, it's actually ended up becoming the thing that's like <laughs> really keeping him in power. Yeah. <laughs> Funny that. <laughs> you remember famously uh, uh, the day or even the, the, the morning of when the, uh, where the results were counted in and they trundled Boris, I think it was Boris and Gove, and they did this press conference and clearly the two of them it, they were the dog, the dogs who caught the car. They had no yeah. idea what the fuck was up now, and that was, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think none of them were prepared. Like, not even Farage thought that the vote would actually go through. Yeah, they were all prepared yeah. to like have to campaign again for a second referendum. Like after after that themselves. <laughs> the Trump thing just really echoed this, didn't it? Like later yeah, that yeah. year, he was just not expecting to win, <laughs> <laughs> and he kind of hated being. <laughs> being president like and all this shit that you actually have to do as president of course uh, all these people who were like you know the prime instigators for why this shit happened in the first place you know david cameron george osborne they stepped down they didn't take any fucking responsibility you know osborne's austerity has led us to this fucking moment and and of course who do they blame jeremy corbyn and the <laughs> labor party stages a fucking coup <laughs> stages a leadership ele- uh, leadership challenge wasn't it like it was like within the week right or even the day after it yeah. was very quick. I it can't was remember very, how, very yeah. fucking quick. I mean, I mean, like it was, it was immediate. You know, like the the backlash against Corbyn was immediate, and it was so transparent as well. You know that like everyone had just been looking for a fucking reason to get rid of Corbyn because 
No one had thought that he'd even be in, in, in uh, Labour leader like nine months in, you know, which is when this was. Uh, um, and, you know, like they like nominated him thinking as, as, as a bit of a joke. Uh, like what, what was it? Simon Danchuk was one of the people that nominated him. Like oh, literally. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The guy who came within a hair of joining Change UK, didn't he? Until yeah. he changed his mind. Quite possibly. Yeah. Um, now they're kind of, you know, very much trying to make sure that like something like that can't even happen. Like no candidate like that can even get nominated um but yeah like they were desperate to get rid of him and like it was so obvious that as soon as brexit happened that was like you know the excuse that they've been looking for and boom there's a leadership challenge pfizer owen you know 29 inch <laughs> owen comes in uh and uh frothy coffee boy frothy coffee boy yeah <laughs> <laughs> i've got i've got a jab of uh jab of owen in my arm right now uh oh, yeah me too yeah we're vibing on the same frequency this is good exactly. oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> we got it on the same day didn't we as well that's true <laughs> Yeah. About it. <laughs> yeah exactly uh on on the you know just like really suddenly feeling the urge to mount a leadership challenge at the labor party <laughs> <laughs> but, steak salad and spotify <laughs> um uh, yeah like that that failed quite miserably i mean corbyn got a bigger mandate <laughs> corbyn got a bigger mandate in 2016 than he got in 2015 i think he got like 61 percent compared to 60. Yeah, I can't remember the number, but it was, it, well, I think it was something like 60, 60, 40 or 62, 38, something like that. He was running against three other people in yeah. 2015, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, think, yeah. did he, it was the first round as well that he got yeah, 50%. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> he got 60% like with three other candidates, which is just oh, insane. Really? <laughs> like with yeah. three other candidates there, exactly. It was Andy Burnham, Liz, uh, Liz Kendall and... Yvette Cooper. Yvette Cooper, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> like that stain of Brexit ended up kind of like haunting Corbyn throughout the entirety of his time as, as Labour leader, right? And like that ended yeah. up, you know, like the um, second referendum policy. I mean, or, you know, like Change UK in the first place, you know, like happening. Well, they, these were all like, you know, just the worst fucking grifting shitheads um, in the Labour Party and some Tories uh, all quitting and and doing their own thing, but largely under the pretext of Brexit. Right. This is one of those things I do always wonder about. And, and you know, what if scenarios and alternate, alternate realities are always difficult to, to, to get a good answer out of, but... I think by the time 2019 and and the second uh, election rolls around, like I think the, the 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 second referendum policy was was poisonous and was a very stupid idea. But I think by that time, the you know I think 2017 was a weird fluke in a way that it, Corbyn could only come that far because uh, the media and like capital with a big C didn't see it coming they thought yeah. he really was a joke yeah, Much, 100%. you know not a comparison but brexit was treated as a joke until it wasn't and so exactly it was exactly. at the moment he, he he showed that he was not a joke that it was actually he came within hairs mm -hmm. of actually getting it mm -hmm. uh, capital and the media and and the, the political class realized that they that he had to be destroyed by whatever means mm -hmm. possible and and i i think that even had Labour not had a uh, second referendum uh, policy on the ballot, I'm still not convinced that that would have made the, the fundamental difference. I don't think it would have done it. 
I, I like I don't think that that singularly would have done it at all. Uh, I think by then, you know, like so many things had sort of built up and the media coverage was just so, so poisonous and so toxic. I Like I'm, I'm pretty much almost entirely in, in, in agreement with like what you said there. That second referendum policy, though, I think it is I think it is important to talk about like the fact that one of the biggest differences between 2017 and 2019 in, with broadly like similar manifestos was that 2017 promised to uphold the referendum and 2019 didn't. And I phone banked in a lot of leave voting marginal seats and almost a universal uh, thing that I would hear from, you know, from Labour Party members was, yeah, I voted leave. Why should I go out and vote? Like the, the general sort of gist of it was like, why should I go out and vote again if they don't even respect the last result? And this yeah. is so true. You cannot have people trust the electoral system, you know, if you don't even respect the the fucking last result that they yeah that they voted for. And we're going to come into this later. I mean, if you look at like the lobby that kind of pushed for the second referendum and the interests of yeah, capital C capital, you know, that they represent um and why they would see a Corbyn government as a threat as well. You know, I think it like this picture starts to become a little bit clearer. The media was pushing this line about, you know, Labour being this like now metropolitan elite party of like students and they're like crazy ideas about trans equality and, you know, not thinking that immigrants are scum or whatever. And then the second referendum policy, I think, kind of cemented that in a lot of people's heads where they're like, well, this outside of London and particularly in like the northeast, they voted for Brexit. So why this is just another example of Labour leaving these like working class, when they say working class, obviously white working class voters behind. And it's all sort of worked together, including like the Labour Party working against itself. The quinoa eating communists. Yeah. The flip flop wearing motherfuckers. (laughs) (laughs) But to me, I mean, it was also very fundamental and and incredibly just insulting. It's like, even if people, and you know, I I don't blame anybody if you don't know the inner and outer workings of the European Union, because it's a fucking doomsday machine. Um, But, you know, just a simple principle of just when people do a, a vote whether or not the referendum was the right thing to do however the question was phrased you know you got an answer uh, you, what you can't do without like really just pissing people off entirely is say no we have to do a second referendum because essentially what people hear is you were too stupid to get it right the first time around mm-hmm. do yeah. it again do it again exactly. you stupid also, fuck the, the EU did this to Ireland didn't they with the Lisbon Treaty they didn't like their result <laughs> got another one they they did, but but like that was only because the EU n- knew that it could push Ireland around because the original of the Lisbon Treaty was the Maastricht Treaty, if I have it correct, which was essentially the same thing, just in a different wrapper, except it would have given the European Union a written constitution. It would have been like a more fundamental overhaul, legally speaking. Uh, but that was voted down in referenda in the Netherlands and in France. And in France. And once those two countries fell all the other countries stopped even trying to hold a referendum. And that's why, just legally speaking, the, the, the Lisbon Treaty is slightly different. And that's why they felt that they could bully Ireland, which is a much smaller, weaker nation. They could just bully them around, uh, you know, which also had very ill effects in Ireland, as of course it should. Anyone serious in politics at the time would have known that the second ref- referendum policy would have been political suicide. 
I don't know. I, I, I've said this. Uh, I think podcasting as practice was already on before the 2019 vote. No, I sure. know we were. And we had this discussion. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying at the time, and you know, I'll, I'll, I'll own up to it. I didn't know whether or not the second round was a good idea, but I also mm-hmm. thought like Labour was caught in an impossible split between a majority of its membership that that for whatever reason really wanted to remain in the European Union and yeah. very broadly construed and broad brush etc you know a, a northern belt uh, of voters leave voting constituencies versus a southern remain voting constituencies and and the question of how many seats labor would have lost to uh, the liberal democrats had they gone with Okay, Brexit is happening versus do a second referendum and then lose votes to the Tories and and sort of you have combined by UKIP at the time. I mean, again, like you're talking counterfactuals, but I don't know what would have happened had you know how many f- southern seats they would have bled to mm-hmm. the Lib Dems. I really don't know that. Yeah, that's true. That no, that that is a fair point. I think, but like at the same time. Um... I think so much of it comes down to how it was all communicated. And, and like, there's this piece which is up on my Medium blog, which, like, I will throw, I'll keep it up, you know, but, like, you know, if I, at some point down the line, I may get, like, screenshot with it and a sort of disued with it. Uh, and the, the title of it was The Genius of Corbyn's Brexit Strategy. <laughs> And I wrote it in uh, in October <laughs> twenty. <laughs> I wrote that in October twenty nineteen. And to be fair, like I still stick to the general argument of the piece, which is that obviously Labour being in ultimately an unwinnable position, and like you know, in, in retrospect, it's very easy to see it as an unwinnable position. But like Labour being in the position that they were in, um, saw the Brexit vote as a protest vote against certain material conditions and aimed to address those material conditions rather than pandering to either side. And I think that both morally and ultimately electorally, I I think that that would have been the correct stance to take and, and to say that, you know, all options are on the table, including a second referendum if it comes down to that. But like the first thing is that we should try to get a good deal. And I think that like at that point, you know, communicating the both the need and the, the possibility of like a good exit deal should have been the prerogative of anyone who was actually serious about, you know, potential fears of like a hard Tory Brexit. But that wasn't. And like all the all the outlets like your New Statesmen and, and your Guardians and your Romaniacs and whatnot, they all pushed for the line that like, no, Labour is, uh, is pandering to the to the Brexiteers and, uh, you know, Jeremy, why won't you give an answer? Jeremy, why won't you give an answer? He's asked the same question about 15 times during fucking live debates and then um, essentially forced into uh, uh, adopting this, you know, through, like I said, what was what was largely a, a hugely fucking astroturfed campaign, um, you know, by, you know, very serious interests of capital backing it. I think that Labour's initial position, which is basically to say that they would kind of deal with it the best as they could. I mean, like that, that appeals to me maybe because that was the correct. Yeah. yeah, Which, yeah, (laughs) that appeals to me maybe because that's kind of like how I uh, kind of take life, (laughs) you know, just kind of take it as it comes (laughs) a little bit. But like, uh, I I understand, you know, I do get why, you know, in terms of like, as a, as a, as a major political party, like that being your stance, it, 
doesn't look great. And I do understand that. But I think so much of that has to come down to how it was communicated, you know, and like the, the outlets, you know, like forget the right, right wing outlets, but at least like the centrist or liberal outlets, um, you know, like they did everything in their power to, to basically be as stupid as possible, you know, like, it's really not that complex what Corbyn's Brexit policy was, but they kept on saying, but what's your Brexit policy? But what's your Brexit policy? And like yeah. their Brexit policy had been lined up in the fucking manifesto from the 2018 conference. The journalists kept on like, like willfully acting like fucking idiots and saying, no, but we don't understand it. It's written in plain fucking English, man. Yeah, it's about three paragraphs. <laughs> like really, it's not that complicated. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to be fair, it did precede a period in which, you know, the, the Corbyn leadership and certainly when, when, uh, you know, so many M MPs were briefing against him, and Starmer was uh, my. I still am not sure how much of a role his role was genuine, and how much he was already preparing for for his leadership. But you know, th there was a long while there where uh, th they did have great difficulty, uh, and I understood that at the time with getting to a position that everybody could agree on that I could even pass like Labour conference with a majority because by that time like so much of the, the leadership had become sort of infested with this with the Fubui crowd with the mm -hmm. with you know as you say some of it was AstroTurf but a lot of people that I knew as well uh, uh, Labour members and not were very you know they'd adopted whether or not they were always this passionate about the European Union is something I think you can honestly mm -hmm. debate, but they'd adopted remain as part of their core identity and as part yeah. of their cultural yeah, yeah, yeah. identity. It, it, you know, yeah. they it become, you know, it's a hateful word, but it had become very tribal. And I hate that word. And I really wish <laughs> I, I don't want to use it anymore. But, how, how, it, do, you, do you find that, do you find that, do you find that politics is becoming rather polarized these days <laughs> uh, well, yeah. I always found a very sort of helpful way of looking at it uh, you know not just in terms of looking in terms of, of capital but um, Patrick Wyman at Tides of History and Riley mm -hmm. at TF and Matt over at uh, Chapo have spoken about this at much greater length and much more intelligently than me that it was also a revolt of regional elites so mm -hmm. local car dealers uh, uh, and boat mm -hmm. salesmen first as yeah. global elites, the, the, the financialized, you know, citizens yeah. of nowhere, to, to use a phrase. Mm -hmm. um, and, and to me, I always found that interesting that there is now, at least the way I look at it, is that there is this sort of new alliance based, a lot of it in terms of like cultural grievance and, and uh, revanchist sort of occasionally racist nationalism of mm -hmm. the local elites who want and need a, a, a national market and then keep big capital out because that they know that that wipes them out. Um, and that can sort of, that overlaps very easily with uh, more sort of blue collar desires for job protection. Again, mm -hmm. some of it cultural, some of it racist, but you know, there is that overlap and to me that constitutes the new Tory party and that's also to me why they have so little problem with spending all the money and not doing austerities because yeah. they know that their supporter base is no longer interested in that kind of thing they're interested mm -hmm. in uh, getting money and they're interested in culture wars which is what this government yeah. is extraordinary they're good at both war both things to an extraordinary degree yeah um that is a good segue to talk about how you know i think this formation of identity and 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 culture um has been you know one of the sort of longest lasting legacies of the referendum right um and on the one hand, an ostensible rise of the far right in the last uh, five years um, and 
you know, the murder of Joe Cox in the uh, in the week leading up to the uh, referendum being sort of, I mean, if if you yeah, like I mean, if you if you told me at the time that like an MP would be actually murdered by a far right terrorist, yeah. basically, and and the side that he represents would end up winning the subsequent election, then the the following two elections, I I don't know if I would have believed you. Maybe I would have, you know, but like it meant. Nothing, didn't it? Like yeah. it basically was forgotten for five years until about a month ago. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And and now obviously we've got the 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 Batlin Spen by election happening. Um, and yeah, I mean Labour is is on course to lose it, uh, having parachuted in Joe Cox's sister, who was going to run as an independent, uh, having parachuted her in as the Labour candidate, uh, and having basically no policies other than like. Asbos, like, <laughs> and bins. I think I saw something the other day that she was going to take care of litter, and I'm just like, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, bins. That's yeah, not exactly. your responsibility. Bins. You're an MP. What the hell? You're not. <laughs> You're not a that's the council. Like, are you serious? <laughs> and also, it's a Labour council. Don't say that because it's a Labour council. <laughs> They've let it go to shit. So what are you doing? I hate it when people say stuff like this, but it is literally stolen from the thick of it. You say I can't remember. Did they do a litter picking thing? No, um, a a dead MP's daughter this time running in her seat as an independent. Oh my God. Seriously. Yes. (laughs) Holy shit, man. And it's so bad. Like they're giving fucking exclusive interviews to the son. Yeah. Talking about like Kim Ledbetter is giving an exclusive interview to the son talking about how great Joe Cox was. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> like it's everything everything about that it's just everything about this campaign is just in such poor taste i'm sorry it's just like fucking disgraceful and if labor lose yeah. that seat it's because they 100% deserve to like yeah. i mean i i posted i i think we talked about it a little bit earlier on on twitter but uh, uh it to me it reminds nothing so much as um it was an american strategy in the 19th century after yeah, the yeah, civil exactly. war uh called waving the bloody shirt so mm-hmm. anytime uh, a democrat then would come close to winning the election the republicans this was before they essentially switched roles uh mm-hmm. would literally sometimes in cases literally wave a shirt covered in blood and say you cannot vote for these uh, awful Democrats because they are responsible for killing our brave boys and you know and that yeah. was the whole pitch the whole pitch was just you can't mm-hmm. vote for these people because yeah. the other sides have blood on their hands and this time with Ledbetter it's just the same thing it's like there's no policy there's nothing there it's just I don't know I watched that Owen Jones uh, video earlier today about Bentley and Spen I don't know if you guys seen no, I haven't it seen yet no, I, haven't seen I it, saw no. people getting very upset that you seemed to interview Galloway yeah, I don't. I I don't know. I think Galloway's a fucking prick, but I, you know. I, <laughs> but I think the situation with him is very funny. <laughs> By the way, like I think his presence in Batman's Pen makes the whole situation incredibly funny. so much funny. Oh, no. <laughs> the last poll, Labour is six points behind. Galloway has six points. Yeah, <laughs> really fucking funny. I mean, it is incredibly funny. I think it should be. Like stress that Galloway most likely didn't take those six percent of Labour's votes. Like he probably got six percent of like non-voters to like say that they would vote, and like um and Labour like stemmed those votes to um wherever they went in Amersham. Yeah, <laughs> I mean how how like Labour lost their deposit 
at the yeah. election. 662 seats, if I remember yeah. correctly. In, in 2017, yeah. they got about 17,000 seats, I think, I think, or thereabouts. V- votes, votes. Uh, but yeah. Um, That's it. <laughs> uh, 17,000 seats would be quite a super majority. <laughs> Told you we nearly won. <laughs> You know, obviously, on the one hand, you know, like you, and and then you've got like these Brexit grifters, like your Darren Grimes, you know, like who will fully leverage this this culture war to their, you know, to their to their benefit, um, and try to get money out of essentially like racist granddads whose you know uh, grandkids won't talk to them anymore. <laughs> yeah, the Starkies, uh, and and this, you know, like GB News. Pricks, you know, like their their whole thing is going to be very much based on. Uh, oh, they're going to have like a token Remainer in their roster, probably as well. That's going to be their diversity, right? Uh, yeah, they have one. I think I can't they remember his one, name. I think. I think, yeah, yeah, they have one. It's going to be Femi. Like that's just essentially like the dumb pinata whose job is to just like get smacked around <laughs> on air by fucking everybody. It's just a ridiculous affair. But it, you know. It, it, I think GB News, again, it's just an expression of the same, I mean, you know, it's, this is not a surprising remark. It's all just an expression of the same culture war, of the same impulses that, you know, of, it, it, it's an expression in extremists of the, the coalition that put together Brexit and that is now sort of solidifying itself as a as a really sort of a new Tory party. And it's interesting to see that the Tory party has... In its own way, and that's what uh, what they're good at. They have managed to sort of reinvent themselves, whereas mm-hmm. what, what Labour does appear to be trying to do is is try to fight the wars of 2010 to 2015 yeah. all over again. You know, yeah. f- responsible fiscal policy. Let's meet around the table. Let's, you know, uh, uh, no clear positions. Let's, uh, you know, let's let's do hope and, uh, hope, you know, it... it that Obama poster with hope underneath it. You yeah. remember that one? Yeah. It's very much those kinds of politics, but it's 100%. like the, the moments passed, you know, like we were in confrontational, you know, we're in violent politics again. You know, just like, I just get the image of like Mike Gapes just being like really delighted to be in Nancy Pelosi's presence. Like, yeah. that, that's, what it, that's what it reminds me of a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's like, if these people that car- that are currently running the Labour Party, like if they aren't plants and 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 ops whose job it is to completely destroy the Labour Party from ever being a, a serious electoral prospect again, like then they should be getting money from someone, you know, like they should be charging someone for this job because they honestly couldn't be doing it better. <laughs> like it's 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 actually fucking stunning. It's incredible. Like, um, I mean, either they are that blinded in their, like, and I mean, you know, we, we've talked about this stuff before on, on various different, you know, platforms, but like, um, either they're like that blinded by their ideology, um, often non-ideology, so to say, you know, their third way ideology and anti-leftism, like the, this kind of uh, deep hatred of the left and, and of what Corbyn represented and the fact that Corbyn nearly won, uh, and kind of showed them all up to be twats. Um, like the fact that the world has completely moved on, like you said, I mean, like they are, you know, either, like I said, you know, either they are that completely oblivious and driven by this ideological bent or they are genuinely fucking deep state ops because there's no other answer. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking this. If like Chikara Muna hadn't like torpedoed his own political career, like if he wanted to, because I remember he did drop out for a reason. Like he probably 
could be like leader of the opposition right now if he wanted to. But he just fucked himself over. Whenever, wherever he shows up, like he he shows up and he's already the boss and he has to kind of like take charge already. Um, yeah, I think there's 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 probably a good reason why like he's had what like six different jobs in the last two years or whatever. Uh, well, like, at least six <laughs> different parties. So you know, fuck him. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I can't even remember what the latest one was, but it's something really bad. Like obviously, you know, like there, there is this culture war going on, right? And 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 Brexit has become like a real sort of. A uh, key signifier in it, and it's become a sort of key to the dividing point um, within this. And obviously, you've got your Andrew Neils and your, um, you know, Lawrence Fox and your uh, Darren Grimes grifters, and they're all pathetic and embarrassing and whatnot. But they are in power. Let's be honest. Uh, but yeah, then- they won. And they won, you know, and they still aren't happy, but they won, you know. <laughs> <laughs> like, this country is still way too left-wing. I mean, all the institutions are taken over by the left-wing, according to these people. Like, that's why we need another right-wing, like, channel, right? Uh, but um, but on the other side, right, you've got the the Remain grifters. And this, like, you know, we were, as we were briefly discussing before we recorded, that's it. I think it's a fascinating cultural phenomenon, right? Both the Remain grifters and Remain quote-unquote activists, let's say, you know, because I think that the fallout of Brexit and of the referendum, I think partially it like exposed the underlying racism and imperialism, which has been at the heart of British society since, you know, forever and never really been interrogated. And I think for a lot of, you know, urban liberals, this was a shock. You know, I think that like they genuinely did believe that they'd solved racism and that like, uh, and that we were living in this, you know, 2012 Olympic ceremony world. Oh, well, racism started again. It sort of it died with the National Front and then started yeah. again in 2016. Yeah, exactly. You know, like when Tony Blair came into power, it was all good. No one really saw yeah. colour anymore. <laughs> I think it's really interesting. I think that crowd, like the specific, like the really, the sort of, broadly termed Romaniacs or like mm-hmm. the people who still have like hashtag FPPE in their mm-hmm. uh, in their bio on their Twitter bios they're to me they're really specific type and like it's a very class specific type of liberalism yeah. um, university educated white collar jobs uh, mm-hmm. for whom like the European Union is is many things but you know it's it has material but it had material benefits you know mm-hmm. uh free travel without borders the erasmus yeah. programs so you could go to different unis um mm-hmm. uh, you know speaking multiple language uh if you're in that class you're likely to have assets so you mm-hmm value financial stability and especially the eu's sort of focus on decorum and rules is a real thing and again if we're talking about that sort of divide between local elites and and global elites the, the, mm-hmm. the global variant you know t- to them i do think for them racism was solved because for mm-hmm. them if someone new moves into your neighborhood or you get a new colleague from India or Mm -hmm. Bangladesh or Vietnam or wherever, they're most likely to be, except maybe in skin tone, they're the same as you because they've gone to a good university, they've traveled a lot, they speak multiple languages, Mm -hmm. you know, they they like rules of decorum. They're possibly from a richer family than you are. (laughs) Yeah, because essentially they're... they're from the same class as you. Yeah. So if yep. you're if you're in that bubble and like I don't want to go too much into it but for because of my own personal upbringing, you know, I've seen this mm-hmm. up close a lot like mm-hmm. 
in that bubble, racism for the most part really doesn't understand because the guy from India who's your new colleague is not a threat to you. And, mm-hmm. and what you see of immigration is like an interesting new restaurant for you to go to and, you know, to chat with your mates about that you're eating ethnic Ethiopian or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And, and that sort of, to me, like that kind of foppy class-specific liberalism is a real thing. And that forms sort of yeah, the core of 100%. that identity. Yeah. At 7 or 8 a.m. the day after the referendum, the first excuses I see are people posting the same chart about educational attainment of people who voted remain mm-hmm. and people who didn't. Mm-hmm. And it's just so fucking telling. And it was, it was just like the first, I was just thinking, like, I voted with you people very begrudgingly, but I'm never going to be one of you. Like, you're, you will always lump me in with this other, and he's like, yeah. these, these fucking troglodytes. Um, and also, like, you know, it neglects to mention that it the the votes skewed older to vote leave, and they will be less likely to have a degree than a young person who will be, you know, have a 50-50 chance of mm-hmm. having gone to uni. Mm-hmm. But that gets neglected because you can't really, like, you can't be snobby about that, really. You can, but that's not the line they were going with. Yeah, and but I think for the for the for the FUPI class, like, it's it's easier for them genuinely sort of in, in mentally i think even to externalize it and say oh, oh it was stupid people or it was racist or it was mm-hmm. you know uh, stupid racist or, or some <laughs> some some variant of that because otherwise they have to say no m- me and my mates you know of of this multicultural uh, you know uh, urban elite which is it, largely speaking what it is and was and certainly now if you look at like the hardcore fuppies you know we and our role as the professional managerial class who actually did didn't do too badly out of austerity and did very well in the years before you know we have a role to play in this collapse of british society and and we've benefited from it in many ways and and that's very hard to say you know the, the roles that i've played the careers that i've yeah. had have led materially or, or mm-hmm. indirectly to some of the, you know, the, the market forces that's now surround us. So it's much mm-hmm. easier to say, no, it's just stupid people. It's just racist people. It's, you know, yeah. it's them, the, the, the ignorant masses who fucked us over and, and who are easily seduced by people like Donald Trump and Farage and then Boris and all that stuff because it's easier for them. Like, it's emotionally much more satisfying to say, no, I am correct. And the reason that I know I am correct is because I am so open and willing to quote-unquote debate you and you know i eat at the ethiopian restaurant yeah yeah and uh you know i go go to france for my holidays yeah when it comes to these people and and uh yeah like i was saying the the sort of identity that formed around it you know i think it gave an opportunity for a lot of these people who had previously not felt particularly politically engaged but now suddenly saw something that they couldn't hide from whether they wanted to or not and suddenly saw themselves as activists basically by putting an fbp hashtag on their twitter handle or whatever but or or you know um by going to people's vote marches uh and you know i and i think it gave like a lot of people and maybe maybe this sounds kind of dismissive and whatnot but like i mean i think similar to like how like extinction rebellion for example you know like gave a lot of people who'd never previously been involved in like any sort of activism like uh, a, 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 an in um into this um it, it it did that you know and like groups like and and i think part of that was a lot of at least what 
is at the surface quite shady crowdfunded organizations like Our Future, Our Choice, which is Femi's, <laughs> Femi's organization, uh, or, you know, People's Vote. That Our Future, Our, our Choice is just, I'm sorry, but that is just a, 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 an anti-abortion front group. That's the only thing I ever can think of when I hear that. And to Will Dry. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there's <laughs> there's a guy called Will, Will Dry involved. I should probably clarify that. <laughs> Middle name Benjamin. No, the the other three founders of of, um, of uh, our future our choice, along with Femi Oluwole, is uh, um, Callum Milbank Murphy, Lara Spirit, and 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 Will Dry, and uh, yeah, Will I mean, Dry for food. <laughs> uh, will be dry. Uh, yeah, I mean, like this, like this Will Dry guy is like some dry young conservative. Like all of these people are just like. Like they're basically children. Like I, mean, I saw pictures. Like they are. They are. They're all quite. I mean, like Femi's like my age. So they will be like thirty. Are you just there with these like three kids? <laughs> yeah. Like I don't. I don't really know what their role is, but uh, they don't have like particularly big like public presence. Um, but like you know, they're like sharing the office with like Best for Britain, and like on their website they're saying OFOC is powered by Best for Britain, Open Britain, the European Movement, and the GCG. Um, all of these are large pro-established pro-remain groups predominantly funded by Tory, Liberal and former Labour donors. And uh, GCG is, uh, is uh, or at least was at the time, uh, chaired by Chukaramuna. Um, <laughs> and uh, Best for Britain as well, uh, which is, yeah, one of their big sort of backers, um, was launched by Gina Miller, raised millions in donations and spent several hundred, hundred thousands of pounds uh backing candidates against Labour in 2017 and 2019. Oh, yeah, they did. Of course they did. Fuck. Exactly. And um, they received large donations from people like Richard Branson, uh, as well as other leading uh, Lib Dem and Tory donors as well. You know, at the same time, you know, you've got like groups like Led by Donkeys, you know, (gasps) just like the most tedious fuckers, like James, Ollie, Will and Ben. (laughs) Just mates. Just casual mates hanging out, drinking pints. Yeah, when I when I saw the article as well, and they were talking about drinking at the Birdcage Pub in Stoke Newington. Of course, they came from Stoke Newington. Do you know the pub as well, Nikita? The Birdcage. Yeah, it was it was really big on Foursquare when I lived in Stoke Newington. (laughs) I don't know what Foursquare is. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's like it's a cunt app. We sign into places. Oh wow! And you get like points where all these places you go and you like leave review. Oh no, no. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) No, but but like the Birdcage, I've like taken the bus past it many times. it's not far from where I live and like and it just looks like the shittest pub like it just looks like the most like out of place gentrified thing that was just kind of plopped into Stoke Newington into Stamford into Stamford Hill it's one of, the, one of those like plastic gastro pubs where it's just like basically it's not- like it just looks it just looked terrible from the outside and I was like this is literally like the last fucking place I'd want to go drink and then when I saw it I was like of course these fucking people met here of course they had their first pint at this shit fucking gentrified pub like it's someone like I posted their picture on Twitter earlier and someone commented that it looks like they look like the four four horsemen of gentrification um, <laughs> that's, that's an excellent line <laughs> yeah I mean they, they look like they could be you know they could be doing a podcast about 
about how, you know, Britain should remain in the EU. They look like they could be brewing craft beer and uh, not letting their workers unionize. You know, like they, 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 they're all the same. They're all the same person as far as I'm concerned. Oh, didn't they come up um, not that long ago with a close the borders video about um, the Rona? Uh, and everyone was like applauding it. And it was like, no, this, you're fucking yeah. saying close the borders. Literally, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like, it's it's insane. Like, I mean, it, and, and this is exactly what I was, um, what I wanted to talk about earlier as well. Like the fact that so many of these people, you know, and their sort of supposed internationalism of this FBPE class. And like, like you were saying, you know, their experience of uh, immigration being like that nice restaurant down the street or like their colleague uh, who is also uh, some upper middle class person from another country. Um, and, um, you know, uh, like so many of them have fucking shown their asses during Corona, like by banging on about closing fucking borders and like, Dude, I'm sorry. Like, yeah, like when you're starting to sound more right than Preeti Patel, maybe take a look in the fucking <laughs> yeah, mirror. Maybe sh- shut your mouth. Yeah. Maybe, just maybe. Like, I was just watching this Led by Donkeys video earlier today, and it's like a five minute video where they just like constantly go on about how the Indian variant, and he didn't close the border to India, and he didn't close the border to India, and he didn't close the border to India, while talking about just how many planes have come from India and how many people have come from India. Marina Hyde the other day talking about like how many planes have come from India and how many planes have, you know, entered the country. And like, oftentimes these statistics are really skewed as well like i mean talking about like what like i I, i'm not gonna try to come up with the figures off the top of my head right now but like you know like talking about how many planes have come for example like a lot of the cargo flights for example but like you know not even mentioning that kind of shit but like regardless like talking about this stuff and superimposing it with images of like brown people you know being burned at fucking funeral pyres and you know uh lining up to uh you know uh lining up to come into this country and it's just like dude like do you not realize what you're fucking doing i mean they'll never admit it but we talked at the beginning of our recording we talked about that um nigel farage poster of the breaking point with the with the migrants you know during it's the same thing it's just well so like the, the difference between their views on immigration with remain and leave right is remain the EU is a nice, gentle, predominantly white mm-hmm. um, immigration block, mm-hmm. whereas the Leave were like, oh, but that's how the sneaky black and brown people get in. You know, they're, yeah. they're going through the EU. The Led by Donkeys, the James O'Brien, the Femi Oluwole uh, the guys, it's all like, again, they're sort of these has, they feel like these has-beens from a previous era, because what they all mm-hmm. have in common, at least to me, is that they're all West Wing addicts. Like, that's what it <laughs> yeah. is. It's... You know, if you just own someone hard enough with facts and Mm -hmm. logic, which is Mm -hmm. essentially what James O'Brien has based his entire Mm -hmm. shitty career on. Written one book called How to Be Right and and the next book called How Not to Be Wrong. Like, how... Like, like, just how... how Like, someone, please give me the fucking self-confidence of that man. Please. (laughs) Well, it's this this extraordinary arrogance of not only saying, you know, I I live in the centre, I am reasonable, therefore you should come to me, but also when you do come to, like, step up to me, I will destroy you with my logic of fact and reason and did you know that you know what was the james o'brien thing from a couple of months ago uh bet you didn't know that sausages were originally made in samaria and you know oh eggs my were, god chickens oh, were they domestic. love that shit they love like, that it's shit, all that kind oh of my shit god. Like, <laughs> proper sausage cast today <laughs> <laughs> but yeah there's also that thing with the fppe people like i never said that out loud before um <laughs> 
But like, because they're right and they're so adamant they're right, it can't be over because they're right. You know, the good guys win in the exactly. end. Yeah. And that's why they keep fucking doing it. They don't shut the fuck up. <laughs> the way that so, so many of these people have shown their asses, and I think that like a lot of that comes back to, um, and like what you were saying earlier as well about like, you know, a lot of the very real material difficulties that like you and your partner have faced, for example, um, post-referendum, you know? And like, I think for a lot of like European families, um or yeah like mixed families let's say um you know like they've they've had to face a lot of these problems for the first time and and obviously like full solidarity with anyone that's has that has to deal with like the british like border regime which is incredibly fucking racist and stupid um but the bottom line is like it's been that way for towards a lot of people for a long time and i think like you know that's where like so much of the racism in this country lies for example is entirely in the border regime and like these realities weren't even like apparent i think to a lot of people you know until they had to like materially had to face them themselves and i think that like this also kind of shows itself in like when when a lot of these people talk about like yeah when this trade deal was 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 struck with india that like oh people from france and germany can't come but people from india can you know and a lot of these people like really like really fucking showing their ass that way as well like you know like okay like yeah don't get me wrong i i hate indians as much as you do mate but like trust me but like uh, <laughs> but like maybe that's not the line you want to go with like <laughs> They probably pose it in this like but the um the leavers, the Brexiters, they don't want these brown people. Yeah. But also I don't, but I'm not going to say that. <laughs> exactly. Was it Emma Kennedy? I had to delete it. Yeah. <laughs> That's the dumbest person. Emma Kennedy is just like a wonderful dog. Like just, <laughs> just, just <laughs> discovering everything for the first time. Like a child. Was she with the racist MySpace posts. <laughs> what the what? <laughs> no, it might not be her. Ever Kennedy, racist MySpace. Let's see if she comes up. Uh, no, I'm getting John F. Kennedy. It's someone else. <laughs> John F. Kennedy's yeah, John F. Kennedy's MySpace. Is JFK like is a still real... posting on MySpace. Yeah. Then we really have cracked a mystery. <laughs> JFK Jr. <laughs> Well, isn't he the uh, QAnon? Yeah, that exactly. Bobby Kennedy? Yeah, that's like, the yeah. yeah Bobby Kennedy's yeah. That's that's the reincarnation or the the revivification of Bobby Kennedy. I think that's the QAnon guy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> On my face. <laughs> but yeah, like um, so many of these uh, uh, of these groups, you know, like your Romaniacs and your James O'Briens and 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 people, and like yeah, just like something that really I think like unites them is this like completely smug self-righteousness and yeah. like like you know i was just like seeing this video of ian dunn earlier today uh like oh. uh, and um i actually sat myself through like like two-thirds of a romaniacs episode romaniacs have ra- now re- now now renamed themselves oh god what now which is about as apt as a name as possible for these people, you know, because they don't have a fucking political ideology. I mean, like, their their whole thing, like, they uh, sort of coalesced around stopping Brexit. That really worked out very well. And now, yeah, it really is a question of, like, oh, God, what now? Yeah. 
Uh, to to me, it's almost like the the old gold what now is like is is apart from from Brexit and everything is like a sort of a response to um, you know the famous Fukuyama thing about uh, the, the the it's the end, end of history. history. We're all yeah, we're all just liberal capitalists now, and it's yeah. like the answer is like oh god, you you mean liberal capitalism hasn't solved everything? Do you yeah. mean there's still issues? Oh, oh god. god. What, what now? now? You know? <laughs> exactly. I, I, I thought we were right. I thought we'd fixed yeah. it, and the way we'd fix it was by putting me in charge. I thought history had ended. <laughs> yeah. What the hell? <laughs> no, but um, Ian Dunn, like in in a separate video, was talking about how like if the unionist side don't allow for a second referendum in Scotland then it'll be a very bad showing. Even though legally they have the right to basically do that, the you know, Scottish Parliament has got a mandate for a second referendum. Um, and uh, therefore they should be given one. His exact line was, in politics, quite a common lesson is, you think about how your enemy wants to portray you. And the, the most primitive basic lesson is that you, you don't be that person. You know, and I'm just thinking like, that's a bit rich. <laughs> That's, yeah. This guy has written a book called How to Be a Liberal. <laughs> Terrible book, by the way. Awful piece of shit book. I tried to read it for the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's 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 actually quite quite incredible. Um, like seriously, you're, you're better off just reading some fucking Wikipedia articles about like Locke and and Mill and, and all those guys like Voltaire. You're genuinely better off just doing that. Just what a piece of shit book. Is it, was this one where he's talking about how liberalism is the greatest invention of of, of humankind? Yes, yes, ah, very right, much. right, right, right. Yeah, these people like just the complete lack of self reflection and just like seeming obliviousness to changing political times. And well, it's interesting that if you see how how it, it, there's such a mirroring, but like sort of later uh, development of like if you look at the history of of Brexit uh, as a cultural thing, like it, in its in its inception when it started a lot of that was like astroturfed as well if you remember yeah. like a lot of that yeah, was yeah, dark money was. for coming from the US from other places <laughs> and it metastasized over time into this yeah. real cultural identity with with a real political heft yeah. to it and I think this mm -hmm. is the same process it's just a bit slower it's also faster though because they're they're responding with much more urgency uh, uh, to to the same dynamic which is something is being taken away from us that, that we had taken for granted so what was and I think to some point still is this astroturf thing has completely turned itself into the the real thing and what i find so interesting about it is that i don't see what the way out is for them i mean the way exactly. out exactly they don't for, have for a them, path to victory if anything it seems to be that the way out for these people which is really worrying is the starmer labor party this sort of very vague liberal-ish international rule-based order you know led by a barrister who talk good man during qc's pmq's um guy because that is what it is supposed to be and 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 that's why i think something like the starmer labor party will survive maybe not him but something like it might survive much longer than we think because these people either are already the core of the labor bloc or they will soon become it, much like the Brexit cultural identity has become a very fundamental core of the 
new Tory party. So, you know, I, I don't I think the 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 Femis and the and the Dunties will be with us for a very long time because they are you know, I think they are seen certainly by by Starmer's Labour Party as much more indispensable to that project than say, you know, if you look at Batley and Spen, the 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 Muslim vote or the traveler vote or the trans vote, all those things that are, you know, either have nowhere else to go, to borrow a phrase, or who are just around but these people are the new core and i think they also form like the core of the the labor staff and the party machine or at least a big chunk of it or they listen you know i wouldn't be surprised if all the the people in in um starmer's office listen to james o'brien and think that that matters and you know you, you can tell because they always go on about another great pmq victory for starmer where you just think yeah, but nobody gives a fuck dude like nobody you do but you know not not normal human beings fuck i hell. mean like i'm sorry but like that man has the charisma of a fucking potato you cannot convince me with any seriousness that he has won in any debate I'm sorry, you just cannot. Like, no matter what facts he brings to the fucking table, the guy cannot deliver anything with anything remotely close to conviction. The only time I've seen him speak with anything approaching passion is when denouncing Black Lives Matter. Like, <laughs> this guy is honestly, like, like these, like, I, don't, I just genuinely don't know what fucking Kool-Aid these people are drinking. Like, all the people that are going on about how Starmer is winning PMQs and, like, and now they are literally doing the fucking Starmer is a top bloke. He needs another chance. <laughs> <laughs> Even when he loses badly and spent, it's not the right time. It, you know, Emily Thornbury is a pathetic fucking apology already making excuses before they've lost. Like, it's so fucking pathetic, the whole thing. Like... <laughs> I don't know, like, and and that you're you're absolutely right. Like that that this is this seems to be like the Femis and the Ian Dunst like seem to be like the target for Starmer's Labour Party. But at the same time, like like so many of these people voted Lib Dem in 2019 anyway, if not yeah. all of them, you know, if not all of them, and like that already is the constituency of the Lib Dems. Yeah, you know, like and so like Labour is trying to win on the one side those people, but then on the other side they're doing the fucking culture wars. They're yeah, doing, they, they like, want the Red Bull racist back yeah, insofar as exactly. that character you know, is a thing that exists. And so like that, like that in itself, like goes totally is like totally at, at odds with one another, you know, which is why they're stemming votes fucking left, right, and center, and they're losing like, you know, basically every single demographic. Like there's there, I genuinely cannot think of a single demographic that Labour has increased their vote share yeah. in since Starmer has come in. Like, I mean he's like between 14 and 15 points behind. Yeah, sort of what I find incredibly baffling, especially about the Fuppy thing, is, I mean, it's a cultural identity and it doesn't need to match up to a material reality because that's not how these things work. But it's like, if you look at the state of the European Union now and in the last five or 10 years, it's just like, I've never understood this. And like, I mean, I worked there almost a decade. I've never understood like this slavish adherence to the European Union because like it must be... Like, you have no idea of what it does in practice, how it works, how it functions. Like, and that's not necessary, like, you know, whatever. You don't have to have taken, like, introductory college courses uh, in European Union and its institutions. It's like, I find it so baffling that this, you know, that this is the particular totem they have chosen to carry yeah. around with themselves. It's, it's mm -hmm. baffling to me. Yeah, I think... It, it kind of represents this sort of sanitized, polite, third-way liberalism, 
Right. Yeah. And it's sort of like, it goes as far as, you know, you can take politics out of politics, essentially. Yeah. You know, like the EU will not even uh, present itself as like, it's not a political institution, it's an administrative institution or it's a bureaucratic institution or whatever, you know, like, um, which is why it doesn't even have political representatives, like elected yeah. representatives. In, 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 like, I mean, no, but I mean, like a lot, a lot of people will make that argument. I'm not saying that like that's the correct thing, but like a lot of people will make that argument. I've heard a lot of people make that argument, you know, um, and, and I think that that goes a long way in in reinforcing that idea of, you know, like the, the ideology of non-ideology, you know, like when you like, how can you like remove politics from politics? And I think that the EU kind of like goes a long way in kind of exemplifying that. There's a massive, like, it's either hand-waved away or just forgotten, like, some of the quite horrible stuff that's come out of the EU. Like, I, you know, in my teens, it was um, forced austerity onto Greece. And I was, like, reading today about the um, the Laval and the Viking Line um, rulings that effectively, or as the EU, they say, yeah, okay, workers' rights, but freedom of movement for employees is more important, so an employer can um, decide that where they're based, for instance, Finland, um, the wages are too high for the union workers and then just uh, fuck off to Estonia where they can pay people less. And the EU have decided that freedom of movement is more important than workers' rights. Like there's that stuff and there's, you know, the the fucking up of the vaccine rollout and stuff, but nobody will, will want to acknowledge that because they're um, beautiful, pristine, liberal institution yeah will look bad yeah. <laughs> and 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 by inference i mean the thing also left unsaid is i this thing about the the, the viking line and the movement and you know costing people their unionized jobs and everything the, the the implicit thing there certainly with with sort of the the the, the james o'brien fans and the foppies on twitter is the implicit assumption is always yeah but i'm going to be on the good side of that trade like i'll always be in the upper management you know it won't be my job that goes to poland or yeah. estonia it won't be yeah. you know the, the 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 polish fruit pickers won't come live next to me i am the neoliberal subject of capitalism therefore it is about my individual desires um because i have the right opinions and went to university and for reasons of either personal achievement or family connections or whatever, got the good job. You know, it won't be me. It will be somebody else's shit that will have to deal with it. And I find that that's always such an interesting thing. Whereas if you look at the European Union as it is constituted, like it, much like most governments, it does exist to protect that top 20% of the mm -hmm. income distribution. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's part of its functioning. I mean, that's... It, as with everything with the European Union, you have to put in 500,000 asterisks and yes and buts and maybes. <laughs> and if you look at the history of, it's never clear cut. And I, you know, it, I always find it difficult to speak rapidly and quickly about these things because I want to try to always go, yeah, but maybe comma, comma, but I'm going to, you know. <laughs> but that is certainly in the last 10 or 15 years, maybe now more since the 80s, since the Reagan and Thatcher revolutions and the third way, which was not only Blair, you have to remember that the third way um, was also, it, it was Schroeder in Germany, it was Koch yeah. in the Netherlands, it was uh, uh, Mitterrand, no, not Mitterrand, it was also France, uh, Francois Hollande, Certainly was one of them. Uh, you know, it, it existed everywhere, and and the the neoliberal turn, which is why you have this idea that like the the European Union is undemocratic, even though I would argue it's more democratic now than it has ever been in the past, and you can see that in the way Parliament's currently moving 
uh, in and against certain legislative items. Um, that, f But for the longest time, it really wasn't democratic. It was designed as very much an elite project, not with the same vehemence and the same idiocy of uh, the, the current FUPPies, but with the more of an old school elite paternalism. You know, we know, it's kind of like, we know what's good for you, yes, but like also, whilst we don't want to upset the apple cart of capitalism, we do recognize that it is important to make things for you, the worker, better in, in a broad or marginal manner. But, you know, that there was a much more of a paternalistic and still is sort of, you know, noblesse oblige kind of thinking in the European project. I mean, there are also quid pro quos. I mean, if you build new uh, highways with EU funds or new railways or you build a new port or something, what it also means is like you expose the people of that country or that region much more to the mm -hmm. European common market and specifically mm -hmm. to the export powerhouses of, of Germany and, yeah. and France to an extent, depending on what manufacturing you're, you're talking about. And if you look mm -hmm. at, for example, the, the, uh, the German car industry has outsourced huge chunks of its production um, and its capacity to Romania, Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, uh, all these ex-communist countries where they retooled the factories, but where there's still this base of very highly skilled, especially in mathematics and engineering. So like a lot of the engine blocks and everything, like the deep construction of, of BMW and, and other companies is done in Romania. It's, it's just the assembly is then shipped and done in Germany. That's why they're still called German cars. But mm -hmm. You know the the the, the intro, so the integration of the European market in that sense is it's not just a paternalistic instinct; it's also a, a capitalist instinct because it if the the market deepens and widens, that is generally good for capital and bad for labor. So it can be both things at the same time. Exactly, it is important to recognize the the fact that that protection of the free market was very sort of hard written into yeah the, the project of the EU. Basically, you know, and which is why it imposed austerity on Greece, and which is why you know, um... well, uh, uh, I, the Greek thing. <laughs> I, I'm gonna try very. If you allow me, I'm gonna try to sure, very, sure. very quickly do like a very, very, very brief summary of of the Greek thing because I think this is important to understand because it's it's very central to how the European Union works, also at a financial level. Um, Essentially, uh, when the euro comes into force, um, most banks and a lot of the pension funds start assuming that Greek state debt and German state debt are the exact same thing because they are now under the control of one central bank. They have one currency. So uh, the, the, the difference between the yield on Greek interest rates and German inter bonds on interest, interest on bonds almost comes to the same thing. Um, and this means that like banks in the core, uh, I'm specifically talking about Germany, the Netherlands, France, and Portugal, load themselves up to the gills with Greek uh, state debt because it still gives it a couple of percentage points or, or, or basis points higher than German stuff. So they make less money. So what they do is they buy more and more and more and more of it. And when the Greek uh, crisis rolls around, which I want to explain because, you know, we're running a bit longer and that's a different <laughs> story in the altogether. Um, and, and the Greeks literally do a press conference saying, yeah, we've been cooking the state books for years now. The interest rate starts to spike again. And then there's a real fear that Greece won't be able to pay the interest it owes uh, and pay off the, the capital in those bonds. And that means that the banks 
in uh, again in Germany, in France, in the Netherlands, and in Portugal, in particular, might they they're leveraged so highly and they're already in so much trouble due to the euro crisis that. Um, if the Greek debt were to fall, then there's a very real chance that those banks would have fallen with them because they they were on such razor thin margins of survival at the time. And you have to remember that, like uh, a bank like BNP Paribas, one of the big French banks, I think yeah. at the time, the the asset footprint of that bank was sixty percent of French GDP. I think Deutsche Bank was running Jesus. at like eighty or a hundred percent of the whole German GDP. So like you couldn't bail them out. They were too big to bail. Literally, you know, Germany couldn't give its entire GDP to Deutsche Bank. You know, like that that's just physically impossible. Um, so they were too big to bail and too big to fail. And that meant that whatever happened under any circumstance to protect those banks and therefore those core states, Greece was not allowed to fail. So therefore, Greece had to undergo austerity. And there was, I mean, there were some other choices that couldn't be made, but again, not enough time. But like that essentially, the, the core bit you have to take away from the Greek crisis was that it was all about saving 10 to 15 banks in core EU countries. Because if that hadn't been done, like literally the European economy could have vaporized overnight. That was not an unrealistic chance of that happening in the span of two or three weeks. That's the, the the Greek thing. And that's also like if you look at the European Union then as a the entity of the single market, it's also very much about finance capital and, and protecting those types of interests. So just... I don't know. I hope that was understandable in the span of two or three minutes, but... <laughs> no, no, no. And I think, no, 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 def no definitely was. was. Definitely was. And I think, yeah, it, it's important to kind of add that um, sort of that clarification there as well, because I mean, it, it does tie into the same thing, essentially, you know, like the, the protection of of, uh, of of free markets, but yeah, specifically the, the financial markets. And so therefore, I mean, obviously there are very good reasons to, you know, uh, to be sceptical of the EU, especially coming from the left. I mean, looking at even you know, borders, which we've talked about at length, uh, you know, on the podcast, but, you know, the, the specific um, uh, paradox of having, you know, open borders in the Schengen region, re region and increased militarization on the external borders uh, in the Mediterranean, you know, stopping the search and rescue, um, you know, just opening uh, water cannons and tear gas, um, you know, at the, at the Greek border, pushing refugees into the sea, Happen, it happened in Greece as well. I think, uh, yeah. yeah, they pushed like a, they literally put a thousand refugees back on boats and pointed yeah. them in the direction of Libya and said, "There you go." Yeah, yeah, and just uh, you know, absolutely horrific shit that you know is being sanctioned and and you know uh, pushed by the EU, um, and and I think that also kind of like ties into this kind of this paradox that we see among a lot of the FEP people as well, you know, that like this, um, you know, on the one hand, during the 2015 yeah, Syrian refugee crisis, like a lot of them saying, oh, no, you know, Britain is open for refugees and whatnot. But, you know, then ultimately, when it comes down to it, really showing their asses when it comes to, you know, like who should actually be allowed through the border. When people say the EU does, like... I don't want to get into the full decision-making process of the European Union, but it's important to, to make distinctions between um, the European Council, the Parliament, and then the Commission and their, their different mm -hmm. responsibilities. But like the, the, the EU does tend to act in unanimity, but that's like only after very long, drawn-out 
negotiation processes and stuff so i'm always wary if people saying the eu does it's like yes in the end it does but the interplay between the three institutions and then between the different european member states is incredibly delicate and 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 like can vary on issue to issue. So I think it's it's incredibly important that like, this is not to say that what the European Union does, and certainly when we were just talking about migration, like that shit's horrible, but like mm-hmm. the way that those decisions are made and the, the factors that lead to that decision are not monolithic and uniform. They are sure. really difficult and like all of them end up in a very different strain. So like, I don't know, I, I just want to be wary of of, you know, the EU. Sure, but I mean, at the, at the end of the day, like Frontex yes, yeah. is an EU organization. Yes, you know, it's, it, it, it and, is. Yeah. Uh, For sure. Exactly. You know, I, I don't and want like, to. Yeah, I, <laughs> exactly. And like, I mean, when it comes to whether it is sanctioned individual, like the, the uh, actions of like border guards and in individual states uh, or not, you know, like my question to that is in that case, like what the fuck is the purpose of the EU if it's not to stop shit like that from happening, you know? Like if if they if they don't even have the if they if they don't even have the power or the or the authority or the remit to step in in you know cases of like clear fucking violations of human rights, um and the refugee convention and whatnot, then like what's the what's the point of it? No, I mean, I my my, my intention is in no way to sort of justify no, the, the actions of the European Union. I'm not saying it at all. I'm not saying it at all. I'm, I'm just saying like, yeah, but when it like because uh, because I've had like a similar discussion with 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 other people as well, you know, and like. And I, and I definitely understand, you know, what you're saying in terms of like, I think, yeah, it is it is important to be sort of technically, technically correct about these things as well, you know, because there is there is a lot of complexity to, to all of these processes and to all of these institutions, you know, but at the end of the day, I think like when it comes to these kind of broader yeah policies, especially when it comes to like immigration and uh, and so on, I think that it just like betrays like a, a sort of more of an underlying um, political ideology, which is sort of at the heart of, of the project. Yeah. There, if, if there is such a sort of unified thing, but, but, but I think, you know, actions like this do betray that there is one, you know? Yeah, yeah, for, for, for sure there is. This is, all, this is a disease you get with people like me. If you've seen the inside of the machine for too long, <laughs> you get sure. this tendency not to, not to make everything okay and sort of talk it away, but to say, yeah, but you know, the, the way that those decisions are arrived at and the results are incredibly variegated and not mm-hmm. always like the actions of like Frontex, if they have more than 2000 active staff, I think I'd be quite surprised if yeah. I might be wrong on those numbers, but like the, the, the actions of the border guards themselves, I mean, especially the, yeah. the really heinous shit, like that's mm-hmm. in, in, in countries like Hungary and Greece and, you know, that's all allowed and winked at and sort of nodded at by the European Union itself. But, you know, it, when we were talking earlier about mm-hmm. David Cameron and the sort of and and even Tony Blair doing the thing of if it's good we've done it if it's bad the European Union has done it the same yeah. thing sort of also works when they're just doing officially horrendous shit because then like it's not the Greek border guard that's doing it well they are yeah. doing it but the EU is making yeah, yeah, yeah. us do it you see it's it's the mm-hmm. same pattern it's just reversed around and sure. that's just like again I don't want to justify the european union and and or say that no actually actually what it does is good because it isn't but just to caution against because this is what i sometimes find with the with the lexit thing is again it's not horseshoe theory but there is a desire to simplify these matters down to 
really basic points where you don't, you know, like the, you can't see the forest and miss the trees. And in the case of the European Union, you really have to keep an eye on the trees as well as the forest at the same time, because otherwise you, you fundamentally don't understand what's going on. And you misinterpret the mechanisms by way sometimes decisions are arrived at. And my my main problem with with Le- not with left Euroscepticism, because I would consider myself a, a Eurosceptic, but what I see sometimes is uh, is to say, well, what we should just do is blow the European Union up, you know, it should just be gone, and then we'll try again. And, and my answer to that is the EU's pretty shitty, but there's like the foundational texts do and should and would allow for a lot more like socialism. Like the, under the texts, like the constitutions and the codifications, socialism is not entirely possible. It's not impossible. But my biggest argument would be once you blow this thing up, the chances of there being enough left governments in power at the same time in the Europe, in Europe in the foreseeable future are to me so small that whatever you're left with will not be better. Like the European Union, meager as it is, shitty it is, does provide some baseline protection certainly if you're living in like hungary or poland or in other places that like you know the 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 tories hate the european court of human rights for good reason and the working time directive for good reason and 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 you know yeah all that kind of stuff so my caution with with hard lexiteering and i'm not saying that you guys have that is always (laughs) that it's like be careful you know in this case the devil you know is a pretty shitty satanic devil, but the devil you don't could be significantly worse. And that is a worry, like um, coming out of the EU. I remember the first big EU furor was that I remember was when I was a teenager and it was uh, Votes for Prisoners. And I remember the press was going nuts about it. And it was like, you know, blaming the EU for like saying that we have to make prisoners vote or whatever. And that's important. And, you know, a lot of the human rights stuff is important and we will have no excuse to keep the, some of this stuff now. Yeah. Not excuse, reason. You know what I mean? No, nothing forcing us. So I'm flagging a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, and um, I take a bit of issue with some of the, you know, way that like Lexit was presented um, because I think that it's, you know, hugely irresponsible. Um to yeah to like discount both um well the 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 racist roots of the brexit campaign but also um the fact that like ultimately it wasn't even about that you know ultimately it was about turning britain into even more of a techno feudal tax haven like yeah the the singapore on thames exactly britannia unchained thing that's exactly that's and and you know it, i mean britain is already like home to the like it's the the tax avoidance capital of the world basically yeah. um and uh i mean it's to kind of like put that on steroids and um and and you know as a result of that you know workers rights would completely get fucking signed away and like the nhs would get you know sold off to american pharmaceuticals and like we know all of this shit you know like I mean, we we've seen this 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 stuff coming from before right i i will say like i don't Fuck knows what the future holds, certainly, if you look at the UK right now. But, you know, I do think that 
inside or outside the, the EU, I don't think that that fundamentally matters if you're looking at the, the, the struggle for socialism, more equality, rights for people, the climate, a good environment, all the stuff that it's incre incredibly fundamental to our futures and then certainly anybody who comes after us. Like those struggles, the European Union was never the thing that stopped you from achieving them. Uh, in a few minor cases, you can quibble about state aid if you really want to. I do still think that like, even though you look at the sort of the Tory and the right hegemony as it stands at the moment, you know, I, I think what was unleashed with the Corbyn movement, I, I don't know if you can, like, you can't bottle that lightning ag again. Um, but there, I don't know. I still think there is a way, I don't know how, and I can't spell it out for you how to get there that you know that, that the ship can be turned around you know D despite me being on too many podcasts i do actually live in optimism like i genuinely <laughs> do i have hope uh for the future uh the mm -hmm. weird as that may sound uh i think accelerationism cuts both ways so you know <laughs> the, the eu was never going to be your savior but it's also in in the same way that it's not your savior it's also not your antagonist you know it's still under your own control where you take it and where you go and how you achieve it and you know hey society still advances one funeral at a time and if you look at the people who were hard behind the brexit thing and the racism thing you know their coffins are closer than ours well that is a nice thought <laughs> lots to lots to consider uh but yeah i think that is a that is definitely a good time to wrap up as well but uh on, on a positive note i'd say um and uh, yeah, thanks a lot for coming on, Rob, and uh, yeah, for cheers. having a lot more. So they've checked. No, no, thank you so much for. I, I mean, I realize we've been going forever. Thank you so much for letting me like talk shite. It's fun. <laughs> not, not at all. I mean, it's been, it's been great. And like I said, uh, having definitely more sort of technical knowledge about this stuff than we do. Uh, so this, uh, I mean, I think that's that's sort of um, our trick with this podcast is just that we get people that are smarter than us to come on and to talk about things. Uh, so yeah, it works out. I think it's a good model. <laughs> if we waffle long enough, it seems like we're contributing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Any plugs, Rob, before we go? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've already um, had your, your, your co-host Elijah on, of course, but uh, please do plug um, PracticeCast. Yeah, uh, so as we said at the beginning, I'm part of Podcasting is Praxis. Uh, we are a weekly podcast. Um, we come out every Thursday, or at least we try. Uh, you can find us at PraxisCast or Podcasting is Praxis on any podcast platform you care to listen to. And we've recently just started our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash PraxisCast. And yesterday, as of this recording at least, we recorded our first ever premium episode with Riley from Trash Future. Uh, uh, we haven't figured the title yet, but the provisional title is Prince Andrew's Other Friend. So uh -huh. <laughs> that's a story and a half. So subscribe if subscribe if you like, or just listen to the free ones. Yeah, please do. Uh, highly recommended. Um, listen, subscribe, sign up to their Patreon. Sign up to our Patreon as well. Patreon.com forward slash leftover pod. Uh, uh, massive thanks to all of our supporters as always. Um, and uh yeah we will be we will be doing some 
Patreon uh, early access stuff. We promise it is coming. It's just uh, do do bear with us with the delay. We're no better than you guys. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, as as always, as well. I'm Arjan at Arjanistan on Twitter. I am Nikita. I'm at Jeremy Horbin, and we are at at Leftover Pod on Twitter as well. Yeah, massive thanks to. Uh, Sarah for production, Cardio for music, to all of you for listening, and we'll catch you guys next time. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye bye.